them are urban legends about early Los Angeles, like a, the race of lizard people that lived in tunnels <laughs> under what's now Los Angeles and, and the Pueblo de Los Angeles. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Grand America Show. We are going to be chatting with uh, Mr. Craig Owens a little bit later about uh, Weird L.A., Strange L.A., all sorts of ghost stuff. And, yeah, it's, it's a pretty fun one. Um, it was kind of neat because we sort of fell into it, thanks to uh, our artist, Napoleon Doom. And uh, it was one of those ones that you just don't know what to expect, and it turned out to be a fantastic episode. It went almost two hours, so you guys should enjoy it. As usual... Uh, first, as always, the one and only, Graham, I play with my nipples while a podcast. Oh, come on. <laughs> come on. You could just re-record that, please. <laughs> now you know where I, now you know where it was. just an see. itch. <laughs> must have been. <laughs> I wish I would have had my camera ready at the time. Oh, yeah. I was actually thinking about, remember that little camera I was showing you with, like the 20-foot cord, that little spy cam? No, I, was I don't think you ever like, showed me that. What, you're getting, I, what I, had, I had bought it because I thought it was like a, a zoom scope, like a, that, like a microscope, a digital microscope that you plug in the USB and then you can zoom in and out. Yeah. But it turned out it was just like a 20 foot camera. So it's got a little thing on the end that's like an inch long with a light on it that can be on or off. And then that's a camera. It's got like a 20 foot cable attached to it. What's it for then? I guess it's for like scoping down a drain. It yeah. would work to do that or like running. Mm. I had talked, thought of before about running it out the front of the garage so it could be like a street cam. And then on the TV here, we could have the street. Should be kind of neat. Pretty lame street for that, really. Well, it's I'd rather have a lake cam. It's pretty busy. It's a busy street. <clears throat> yeah. It's not long enough for a lake cam. It's only 20 feet. Right. But now, but now I'm thinking, you're thinking I might just a like, gram cam. Yeah, I might just route it through here and have it like snuck in behind your screen someplace. The gram cam. Yeah. You do a good enough job with that, your that with I your can, phone that I can just like have a little button here that I just like click. It amazes, <laughs> it amazes me how many pictures you get of me just staring at the camera. Like you have a knack for the timing. Patience. I should have been a photographer. I was swimming yesterday. Yeah, I was doing the Wim Hof. Where yeah? The water is fucking cold. Where? Which? Where? In the lake. Oh, in your lake? Yeah. Oh, really? Real cold. Huh? Doesn't seem to bother the kids as much. It's huh. like I jumped in off the thing. It's only up to your waist. And it's like that last bit to get your like junk and your upper body wet took me a few minutes. So yeah. like, work up the courage. Yeah. And once you do it ba- once, it's not so bad, but it's cold. Like that water was fucking ice like two weeks ago. Did you try breathing through it? I tried. Did it help? I don't know. I didn't see that. There was a lot going on. My kids wanted to come in, and but I tried doing the, and then yeah. it didn't seem to help. But I was in the water swimming in fucking May in yeah. Canada. Yeah. No, but if on you, a lake that's filled by fucking glacier water. But I don't think you want to do that that type of method while you're in the water. I think that's before. Be before, and then while you're in the water, just do but that I real plunge. slow, long breathing. Oh yeah, I, I don't think. plunge. That's what I do anyways. Because it's not deep enough to plunge. If you tried to plunge, you would end up fucking hurting yourself. But yeah, there's got to be stuff on the bottom, too. You don't want to hit that. It's just kind of muddy, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But now's like the only time you can really go because it gets too weedy. By like yeah. the end of June, it's pretty weedy. Pretty gross. Yeah. I don't really like lakes, like muddy bottoms and weeds, and especially because it's a fake lake, right? 
It's a man-made lake. It's 120 years old. So. Still. It's, I don't pretty know. Pretty established by this point. You know what I mean? It's kind of yeah. weird. I think I'd rather be in the ocean. I prefer lakes. Really? Yeah. I grew up on lakes that are fucking massive. Yeah, those are different, right? Yeah. These are like, this is more like a pond. Like my lake wasn't even a great lake. No, this is nothing. This isn't even as big as the bay that we parked our boats in on my lake. Really? The, the yeah. bay, we call it McNeely Bay. That's where we park our, where, well, that's one of the spots people in Bombertown park their boats. And that bay is probably about fucking 15 Chestermere lakes. Wow. Just the bay. Yeah. And then that you get out of to get into the real lake. But there's parts of that lake you can't see across. Yeah. Yeah, it's totally different. So I guess, you know, and I never even thought about that in my flat earth argument, that I've, I'm from a town where the lake is literally only, you know, less than 100 miles across, and I can't see across the fucking thing. There's two lakes home that you can't see across, and they're not great lakes. They're just lakes. What does that have to do with the flat earth? Well, because you can't see the fucking other side of the lake. That's not, that doesn't mean it's because of the curvature. It means you just can't see that far. Like you can only see 11 kilometers, I think, with your eyes. It's. Oh, no, 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 that doesn't make sense. Ignore that. (laughs) (laughs) What is. (laughs) So the mountains are how far away? (laughs) Exactly what I just thought of. No, but there is a limit, though, right? Yeah, that. Well, so here's the thing that lake is not as far, is not 100 kilometers wide. So that lake is less wide than the mountains are far away from the igloo. And I can see the mountains from the roof of my garage. So you should be able to see the trees on the other side of that lake. Period. Mm. It's only 100 kilometers. It's less than 100 kilometers. I could get you an exact of the two lakes. You know what? By next show, I'll go on Google Maps and I'll get a scale of exactly how wide these lakes are. Because that's the problem with some of the arguments for the flat earth is that they're looking at like a city like Chicago far away or whatever, and it's supposed to disappear because of the curvature and they still see it. That's the problem with it, right? That's what the flat earthers use. We shouldn't even get into this. No, really. we shouldn't. No, we really shouldn't. We're going to do an Sorry, episode Craig. on it at some point. but One day. Because should you be able to see the mountains then from here? The mountains are fucking three kilometers tall. <laughs> <laughs> It's like eight inches a mile a curvature. But they're about a hundred and yeah, they're about hundred and twenty kilometers away. Eight inches a mile. So over fucking eight thousand miles, it drops fucking whatever half the diameter of the Earth. It drops a full four thousand miles. So, you, but anyways, eight inches a mile is what you lose. So to not be able to see Chicago at towers that are fucking probably seven or eight hundred feet tall, it's a lot of eight inches. What is it? So times take fucking. 800 and times it by 1.33. So 1,064. That's how many miles away you should be able to see the tops of the Chicago skyline. Very roughly estimated. Yeah. That's, yeah. So what I did is I turned it by 1, 1.3 to turn that 8 inches into a full foot. Right. Yeah. My understanding of trigonometry is sketchy at best. So. <laughs> I don't think that has to be trigonometry. It's just Isn't basic it math. Is? No, it's not basic math. It's a, well, so is trigonometry. It's just a principle of basic math. Yeah. Hmm. What's, where does basic math end? That's a good point. When you run it. Long division. <laughs> <laughs> After common core, will be. <laughs> so I got a couple of synchros for, to share and a little bit of that. And I got a really good UFO quote from the CIA reading room. I almost feel like we need a special like CIA reading room. Quote, jingle. Jingle. 
You're greedy. Jingle yeah, baggy. getting greedy, yeah. Felix will just pump them out, too. That's the same. <laughs> uh, so what jingle do you want to play? Well, I got to... I mean, we could do a couple of shout-outs if you want. Dan and Graham going deep. It's a profound UFO quote of the week. <clears throat> Words to ponder and critique. It's a profound UFO quote of the week. Okay, the problem with this CA reading room is that it's it's kind of... um, It's hard to read. So just bear with me here because it's kind of been photocopied ten times, and it's uh, yeah, right. So this is uh, the domestic collection division foreign intelligence information report. Aerial observance of an intense source Ariel? of light. There's a little mermaid in this story. <laughs> what do you mean? There's a little mermaid. Well, how should I say it? Ariel. Actually, I think that's her name. <laughs> Ironically, and it's from uh, September 1976. And it says, this is unevaluated information. An unusual incident was observed during 10th of September, 1976, British European Airways, so BEA flight number 831 from Moscow to London. Between 1800 and 1900 hours, the aircraft was cruising at an altitude of approximately 33,000 feet. That'd be 9,900 meters. Would it? Apparently, inside the border. Would that be a kilometer? No, it would be ten, a, a thousand, it would be a hundred kilometers. No. It would be a yeah, kilometer. A kilometer, yeah. yeah. Huh. That's basic math. Apparently, <laughs> apparently inside the border of Lithuania, when a blinding single source, constant intensity and stationary light was observed off the starboard flight path of the aircraft. The light's distance was estimated to be approximately 10 to 15 miles off the aircraft's path and approximately five to 6,000 feet below the aircraft, somewhat above a lower cloud layer. The light, which resembled a sodium vapor lamp, yellowish in color, and which was too intense to view directly for any period of time, completely lit the top of the lower cloud layer, giving it a glowing cast. The light was of such interest that the BEA pilot came onto the aircraft's intercom network, stated that he was somewhat concerned over its presence, and said he had asked the Soviet authorities for an identification of its source. The Soviet authorities came back with a negative identification response, suggesting that he should not ask questions. The light was observed for approximately 10 to 15 minutes until the aircraft had flown past and left the light source behind. That's it. Beauty. Thanks, CIA, for opening up your files. I swear the CIA is in my phone. Yeah, probably. I can't put CA in, in Instagram. It'll it never, it'll, if I put CA as a hashtag, it won't accept it. It's like my phone constantly does this thing where it's around like 38% or it always seems to be somewhere between 30 and 40%. I could be listening to something or no matter what I'm doing, it just, boop, screen goes black. The little fucking wheel starts turning there, pops back on. Still have my thirty eight percent of battery. Why do you think? Of. Why do you think it's the CIA and not the NSA or the FBI? Well, I don't know, or... It just seems like someone's installing things on my phone and it has to reboot. <laughs> it's like we have to reboot to install this. Yes or no? Yes, and I'm just like, think. Yeah, maybe. Huh. They, they would probably be that brazen by this point. Probably. So hey, I got a couple shout outs here uh, before we forget. Shout out. What's a shout out? Two things that we want to uh, talk about. 
so Adam Curry's Podcaster Pro, right? Oh, that's it's, a shadow. It's coming out. Uh, he's he's created this podcaster device, and it's launching. The Kickstarter is launching on May twenty sixth. May twenty sixth. Yeah. So that's coming up. Oh, that's nice. pretty quick, actually. Actually, that might even be right after this intro. After. Oh yeah, that's going to be coming out right as this uh, comes out. So what does it Perfect. say? You're guaranteed the early bird level by already being on the list. I hope you pledge in the first 48 hours, but if you decide later and the 497 level is full, just let me know and I'll add a spot for you at lowest price level available. This is an what offer for that? only for people on this list, so please keep this offer to yourself. Our way of thanking you for being an early supporter. Did so, you already donate? No, I we haven't. We should send some out of our PayPal. We should get on that. Yeah, we should. We should for sure to, to help them out. Yeah. Anyway, so lo- there's lots of people out there that contact us that are interested because in we're podcasting, want one of those. and that is perfect for traveling. Yeah. Yeah, because right now we we you should it's have seen just us a in the fucking car. disaster. We had, we had two two we setup options and two cords and a broken mic. Yeah. <laughs> one less mic and two less cords. Sounds so like if we had, we could just have that and that and it's just small too, right? Yeah. That's perfect. So anyways, and I'll those put, guys have been good to us. So I'll put, a, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Speaking of which, we are now confirmed on the No Agenda stream. So if you, if that's where you heard us, let us know. Yeah. Which is super crazy. And that's a stream after the No Agenda show, which is every I never Thursday. knew whether or not to believe Grimsteak or And not. Sunday. <laughs> but I'll believe Curry. Yeah. No offense, Grim. So the other shout out is the Red Pill Expo, which you might have heard about on our last episode with G. Edward Griffin, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, that's in um, Bozeman, ca slash ep two twenty four, Bozeman, Montana. That's where you go on going? June twenty third, twenty fourth. I think so. I might. Yeah, seems like you should. Yeah, with a bunch of cards and stuff. Yeah, just go down for and, and make meet some, meet face, some people. Make some face to face. I don't think I'm going to go down and like work a lot and record stuff. No, like don't I'll take notes anything. and all and do like a. Just I'll do book a good people, like yeah. Get some face to faces, yeah. give them a card, see if you can get some dates down. If not, whatever. At least yeah. you know then they know who you are when you email. Yeah. Them. How could they say no to Graham? Exactly. What else you got, buddy? That's it for the shout outs. Just a couple of those things, important we don't things have a I want to talk about. Jingle. This is the closest thing we have to a shout out jingle. What do you got next? I got a couple little mini uh, synchros here. Well, actually, one's. Synchronicity. It's time for another installment of the Canadian Third Party Synchronicity Rating Authority. That sounds like Ephraim to me, too. Our buddy Ephraim. Ephraim. Why does it remind me of Ephraim? Everything reminds me of Ephraim. There's something weird going on there. So do you want the rainbow one or the... uh... Rainbow. Yeah, okay. So this is... I just got to make sure that it's not anonymous or not. This is from Nick. Hey there, fellas. A new member of your Brit Posse here. That's the hashtag UK Posse. However, your sweet... Hopefully everyone in the UK Posse is okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it's not. Uh, it's not. Be safe, boys. Yeah, be safe. However, your sweet Canadian voices radiate from speakers and headphones in Vietnam, as that's where I'm currently calling from. Vietnam. 
Vietnam. Good morning, Vietnam. Firstly, a big, fat, massive thank you for all your efforts in making a top-notch show. I've been listening for some months and really appreciate what you deliver. Your banter and approach to the fringe side of things instantly resonated with me, and I consider you friends I am yet to meet. I shall be sending you a few thousand Vietnamese dong shortly while plugging this show to, to this end and to anyone who will listen slash comprehend. Now synchro time. My mum, that's how the mom? UK posse says mom. I do it too. M U M, yeah. That's well, I, mean, I say M O M, but it sounds like M U M. My mum died a few years ago when I was in my early twenties. It goes without saying that this was a sad time, but I feel fortunate enough to be able to find some positives from this experience, particularly in terms of spiritual awakening and growth. I've had countless synchros, seeming to me at least, as winks from the other side, and I'm very happy to share. But for today, let's stick to a rainbow theme. Of course, rainbows are fairly common-ish sightings, but the timing, location, and consistency of these have left me with tears, laughter, and my jaw on the floor all at the same time. I shall hit you with a list of a few of the good ones. Within hours of my mum passing, a nice juicy rainbow pops out on the journey home from the hospital. There are a number of RBs later that week seen by myself, family, and friends both together and separately. One anniversary of my mom's non-physical return whilst I was working on a ship, I'd drop a sunflower overboard and then be greeted with rainbows in the ocean spray. A tree for my mom was planted at a local park near my family home. The park can be seen from the upstairs window. During a time I was back home in Leicester, I was having a good time thinking about my mom, and then I went upstairs to see a rainbow emanating directly from her tree in the park. At my sister's wedding last year, a real beauty of a rainbow joined the party for about a half an hour. During this photo, she's like a rainbow by the Rolling Stones, coincidentally and synchronistically played from the wedding playlist. By this point, after countless other rainbow synchros, there's a strong rainbow. Mom associated by most members of my family, both with the spiritual and non-spiritually inclined. Recently, my sister had been stirring spiritually towards an awakening. This sister, Sarah, has found the physical absence of my mom the hardest. She has always loved the timely appearance of rainbows, but until this point is yet to really dive into some of the mysteries of life. I suggested a trip to Glastonbury for some inspiration or magic or both. It had been raining continually for days and nothing had changed the morning we had planned to go to, to head to Glastonbury. We decided to go anyways, battling the British puddles. Well, he's on. You know what a welly is? It's probably like a galosh. A welly? <clears throat> yeah. Isn't that like a beef wellington? No, it's a, it's got to be something on the feet. <clears throat> I'm losing hey, my Siri, voice. what's a welly? Okay, give me a moment. Here is what I found. Take a look. Siri's See, a he's British, voice. so he should know. Uh, welly. Alternative way of spelling welly. <laughs> That's fucking helpful. Well, he's on. We hiked the Glastonbury tour, the supposed heart shocker of the planet in sideways rain Two, yep. To be greeted at the top by a break in the rain, a shift in the clouds and the autumn sun to be in through delivering a rainbow ring. Imagine the rainbow continuing as an arch as the land drops away due to being on a large mound. Failing, failing that, think Mario Kart. 
May I note this is the second rainbow I have seen at the top of the tour, also bringing with it a distinctive mum vibe and a colorful hug when I really needed it. I could go on and on with other examples and similar stories from the rest of the fam. For me, each one was profound at the time, but now looking at them as a growing catalog, it really does have some extra punch. Apologies to Mr. D. Ron for putting him in a sticky situation of raiding my dead mum, who I believe to be pulling some synchro strings from behind the scenes. But I do not for one second question his capable and professionalism when it comes to the sophisticated art of synchronicity rating. Thanks again for the good work. Keep up the good work of presenting and assisting others and sharing wonderful pieces of this magical puzzle. Increase the peace, Nick. And he says, P.S. I'll chat about the Vietnam squatty potty situation next time. And P.P.S. I found you on a general spiritual slash alternative podcast search. I forgot the keyword. So, yeah, it's always good to hear how you guys found us. That's our only market research we have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's weird. And you guys are, are not only you guys are only marketing, you're also only market research. Yeah. So I don't rate uh, dead relatives. You don't rate dead relatives? But if I had to guess, pretty sure your mom likes rainbows. One of my bunnies is named Rainbow. Really? Yeah. Does that add to it? No. No. It's pretty hard to add to your mom's sending out rainbows whenever you think of her. Are you not going to rate it then? I'll give it an eight. I, well, that's what I was thinking. I knew you were going to give well, it an eight. Well, there's like four numbers. <laughs> Psychic ground. Can we do the like Ghostbusters thing where I hook you up, hook a car battery up to your nipples and like turn it on and off when you get it wrong? That could be a show, right? Yeah. <clears throat> could Perfect. be. Yeah, thanks for the email. Absolutely. Got time for one more? Sure. So this is from Clarissa. She says, hi, I've been on a spiritual journey ever since my father passed away. Whoa. What? No one can see your fucking hand signs. Well, I didn't realize these were intertwined as well. This is a compound synchro in a way. This is about her father and the other one is about his mom. So she says... I've been on a spiritual journey ever since my father passed away in March of last year. Since then, I have noticed many synchronicities. Here's one from, from today. I just started listening to your podcast two weeks ago after searching for interviews with Crow 777. I heard an interview with Crow 777 on the Higher Side Chats, and I was fascinated. So that's how I found your podcast. I've been binge listening to all your episodes by just clicking on them one by one. I was listening to one episode where you mentioned an interview with a woman who married a shaman, and lots of interesting things took place. So I tried to search for it by just reading the descriptions. Maybe search Black Jaguar. <laughs> I found an no, episode. Mirror. I found an episode with a woman named Margaret DeWeese. I think that's it, right? I don't even know if it's the right episode because I stopped it to write this email. Anyways, she starts to talk about John of God, so I decided to Google him. I found some videos and two of the interviews were done by Oprah. Oprah Winfrey? Yeah. I don't like Oprah at all. Like at all. It's just a personal thing. <laughs> this is the interesting part. I went in my email and I had an email from OWN. That's the Oprah Winfrey Network. I don't know how or why. Remember, I don't like Oprah, but from the looks of it, I'm now signed up to her newsletter. You can never get that was serious. You can't. Did I tell you about <laughs> yeah. that? Did I tell you? Did you remember that? Yeah. It ended with me asking how you got signed up in the first place. 
Well, I was in her book club. I was an Eckhart Tolle fan. Like, I did follow Eckhart and Oprah at one point. <laughs> no, Oprah. <laughs> so anyways, she says, I searched my inbox for any other meals containing the word, emails containing the word own or Oprah, and I found nothing. The other part of the synchro is the show that own recommended I should watch. It's called And Yala Fix My Life. I happened to come across a new website where I can watch TV shows and in Yala Fix My Life was listed. I've never seen her show on any of my TV websites. Last part of the synchro is that your email wasn't listed on that old episode, so I had to go to one of the other episodes to find the spam gram email. I picked up episode 152 to view the show notes. The episode started to play and I heard the woman say something about Krishna in the intro. I stopped in at a Krishna temple this morning because I've been reading the Bhagavad Gita. I'll be attending a service next week. Weird, right? If you pick it for the show, I won't be offended if you don't read this word for word. Much love, Carissa. How sad is it that it's gotten to the point that people have to add that little disclaimer? <laughs> don't worry, Graham. It's okay that you butchered my words. <laughs> That's not why she's saying it. That's a good one. That's like a little compounder. Yeah. And it is hard to, to unsubscribe. See, like, this is where... Do you think Oprah's so switched on that she... That... Where how was I thinking of that? How did, how did she end up... Because forward it to her? No, yeah. because no, because maybe uh, when when he Googled John, when he Googled John, right? When she Googled John, Darren, when she Googled John, yeah, her computer automatically like found out that Oprah was a part of that, and she was watching that, and it subscribed her to the Don't took a subscribe to bot. Yes. Didn't you actually subscribe to it, though? I subscribed to her book club, and I tried to unsubscribe many times, and I could not get unsubscribed. Are you unsubscribed now? No, it's still, I just gave up. I see your phone? No, why? I'll unsubscribe for you. I'll, 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 we'll do this later. Okay. We're running out of time. Okay. So that's a good one. I'll give that, like, that. those kind of add up, so we'll give that an 8, too. Okay, I'm cool. Going 80 today. All right. Good so years. Good decade. Yeah. Support the show. If they make you laugh, if they make you cry, if they blow your mind, why not go online to grimerica.ca slash support. Well, yeah, just do what the song says, people, if you can. Uh, there is a link in the show notes as well. Check out grimerica.ca slash support. If you can, when you can. If you could be so kind as to sign up for a monthly, uh, <coughs> those definitely help out the most. Uh, but if you can't do that, and there's a bunch of options there as cheap as a buck a month, which is like 25 cents a show, uh, right up to, I think, the, the top ones around 30 bucks a month. But, I mean, we're happy with a buck, and uh, we're happy even if you can't afford to show support the show monetarily. You can spam gram some synchros or trip reports and stuff like that. You can tell people about the show, you can share the show, you can review the show, you can rate the show wherever you can, tell people about it, sign people up for the newsletter, all that stuff's in the show notes. Uh, check out grimerica.ca uh, slash swag for any Grimerica merchandise, and those are all the ways to help us You can stay. send us a postcard too. Yeah, absolutely, grimerica.ca slash contact. Those are all the ways to support the show. All those things count as supporting the show, and only one of them costs money. So what are you waiting for? Other nine are free. You can do those anytime while you're sitting in traffic, 
Well, maybe you're not allowed to touch your phone in traffic some places. I heard they're clamping down here at red light texting. Really? Yeah. Does it count? That would really like mess you up, right? My, well, I have like mine's mounted up above so my mine. steering wheel. Yeah, so, so I never mine. know if that's like. To me, it's better than fiddling with your radio in the seventies and eighties and nineties. Like that's that's better. Maybe. Like imagine people used to shave and eat and drink coffee and then play with the radio. What's the difference? But my voice text patience is finally paying off. So that helps. Like, remember I say you always have to just go through and do the voice text and correct the words and it'll slowly start to learn. No, I don't so. now so. my voice text is pretty good. Like, I use voice text That's why I can't day. understand it. Do you really? You have to fucking decipher something. <laughs> There's a bit of code work. Because now when I'm driving, I just don't bother changing them, right? If I'm at home, I'll change them. But now if, it's, if, I, if I can scan it quickly and say, yeah, you should be able to pick that up, then it's on you. The onus is on you to pick up what I'm putting down. Like a game. Mm. Right on. That's right. So check out grammarica.ca slash support, guys. Uh, also, if you want to get into the perpetual Grammarica chat, there's a bunch of people oh, in there. Right. 150 or so people in there chatting up a storm. Uh, there's people in there just about 24-7 at this point. A couple regulars, a couple in and outers. Yeah, there's somebody in there right now. Failed face burger and grim steak, of course, or face grim burger. Face burger? <laughs> He's in Alberta. He's up in northern Alberta. Yeah. Failed face burger. Check that shit out, guys. All right. Uh, and James is in there, too. Yeah. James who, Cruz? No. Yeah, James Cruz, yeah. He's always in there. Yeah. He's one of the regulars. Him and Grimsteak, like, run the place. <laughs> All right, guys. Enjoy the chat with Mr. Craig Owens. It's a good one. got here craig owens he's from bizarre los angeles that's bizarrela.com and uh, he's a photographer and he's into this forgotten history he's coming up with the first his first book on this called haunted by history and it's separating the facts and legends of eight historic hotels and inns in southern california and luckily he's got volume one on here because i've got some questions about hotels that aren't included in, in that first volume so maybe he's already working on those in the second volume and uh, he's been, you know, highly recommended from one of our bloggers, Napoleon, and uh, a friend of the show. And Napoleon actually does all our artwork every week. So um, you can see his artwork in the episodes. So it's good to have you here, Craig. Thanks for coming on to talk about your work. Well, thank you for having me. Pleasure being here. That's it. It's good timing. Actually, I mean... Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. 
Oh, I was just going to say, nice being here in Pasadena, California. Ah, it's nice here now, too. That one doesn't work anymore. We get a lot of flack for being Canadian. Oh. And and, and dealing (laughs) with the cold all winter, but now it's warm here. Pasadena is probably still nicer, though. Well, it's it's overcast today. Usually nice and sunny with lots of parrots, wild parrots that fly around here. So, wow! Um, but today it's kind of cold, overcast, and no parrots. That must be super south then. How far are you from it's Mexico? It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. With I actually love the parrots. I don't think I think some people probably don't. They make a horrible noise, but I. <laughs> I love it. And when you see them flying in formation overhead, and they're usually green uh, <laughs> birds, so it really makes you feel like you're in some tropical land when you're really, you know, just in Southern California. Well, that's pretty and tropical. Would... <laughs> well, yes and no. I mean, it's become tropical over time, but I think, you know, when this area was first settled, People are going, gosh, this is kind of a desert next to an ocean, you know, surrounded by mountains. Um, it, the, you know, fortunately, a lot, of, a lot of plants could grow out here. But I, I want to say the palm trees, which is what Los Angeles and Southern California is known for. The palm trees, I believe, were moved in from Mexico and planted, you know, back in the late 19th century. And so... Uh, you know, the weather is perfect for them, so they thrive. But palm trees aren't a natural plant that was already here when settlers started coming out here. Hmm. I wonder, you know, I was reading something the other day about how much of the Amazon might have been like. Um, totally t- totally different not too long ago? Or no, actually just by design, not nature. I forget where I was reading it, but it was like. Obviously, it alludes to ancient culture, super, you know, cultures mm-hmm. prehistory, like pre- that, before the ice mm-hmm. age kind of thing, and they yeah, that have literally like uh, geoengineered it, hmm. planted it, man-made ecosystem. Hmm. We'll be looking back on LA a hundred years from now, and it's full of palm trees, and yeah. we'll be going, yeah, they this was geoengineered. <laughs> Well, we, we planted, if you look at like old pictures of Los Angeles from like the 19-teens and 1920s, especially when they were building houses, I mean, Los Angeles was, if it wasn't the fastest growing city of the 20th century in the United States, it was second. I mean, Las Vegas really mushroomed as well Yeah. Uh, in, the, in the latter half of the 20th century, especially, but Los Angeles it was booming, but if you look at the old pictures, there weren't a lot of trees and a lot of vegetation uh, in these in these tracks. And like Hollywood Boulevard, you had streetcar tracks, you know, running right smack dab through the middle of the street. And the, but there were no palm trees lining Hollywood Boulevard at that time. It was concrete, brick, uh, and asphalt, and you know, streetline tracks and pedestrians. So. Now, when you go down there, I mean, there's there's been a conscientious effort, especially once smog set in in the 1950s in Los Angeles. There was a conscientious effort to plant as many plants and trees as possible to help deal with the smog situation in Los Angeles. And 
and surrounding area, I might add. And it's taken off. So I imagine if there was some time traveler from, you know, the early part of the 20th century that, that came to Southern California in 2017, I, they would probably would be mostly lost and they would be wandering around going, why is everything so green? What, you know, all these trees and plants and flowers and whatnot. Now, Pasadena was always known for its rose parade and it's over a hundred, it's a, a tradition that's over a hundred years old and it's world famous. And I've actually been to the parade a number of times and it's, it is something to behold. So at least Pasadena did have gardens, you know, back in the late 19th century. And, and of course it was already known for its roses. Thanks to, in, in great part to its rose parade. So Pasadena is a really cool place. Uh, I like it. It's not too large a city. Um, it, it's okay. You know, it, it has uh, it has a lot of its old charm and its old beauty, and it's still a really big deal when it comes time for the parade to come through the main street, which is, happens to be Colorado Street. So when when does when did Hollywood get when did Hollywood get going there? In LA, like I, I'm not too familiar with the the history of the West Coast, like the, from LA, like when LA started to grow in the early 1900s. Was that Hollywood, or was it a little later than that? The early 1900s was that Hollywood? Well, believe it or not, I might be able to segue into a hotel <laughs> going this route. <laughs> but uh, you know, Hollywood in the late 19th century was mostly just farmland. Um, there were very it was thinly populated and it was nothing too special that you couldn't find in other areas. What ended up happening is Los Angeles started to boom right around the time of the gold rush. Even though there was, wasn't gold in this area, it still was a seaport town and the railroad was instrumental in bringing people to uh, Los Angeles. And so the railroad, you know, came in around 1875 or so. It may have come in a little later than that. I'm, I, I'd, I'm not specifically sure mm -hmm. what year the railroad came. All I know is that it did come, and it brought a lot of people. And then in the around 1890s, oil was discovered. That brought even more people. So Los Angeles really started to develop in the late half of the 19th century. Then in 1906, Los Angeles finally built its first five-star hotel, which uh, was the Alexandria Hotel. And uh, it was in downtown Los Angeles at the edge of the financial district. By 1910, actually in 1910, the first film crews from the East Coast came to Los Angeles to shoot in the winter because it was too cold in New Jersey for them to shoot. And the people that came over in 1910 and stayed at the Alexandria Hotel was D.W. Griffith, Mary Pickford, Max Sennett, and a few others, lesser, like Mary Pickford's younger brother, Jack. Um, they settled in Los Angeles. They scouted around Southern California. They shot a few little one-two-reel films. And then by March or April, 
the weather had warmed up in New Jersey enough for them to go back and continue shooting because they wanted to shoot around the year. Uh, you know, they didn't want to take three or four months off from shooting. So E.W. Griffith loved Los Angeles so much that he came back in 1911, this time without Mary Pickford, but he came back with others and started shooting. Then by 1912, 1913, 1914, more people started coming over uh, to Los Angeles. And so the Alexandria Hotel in itself was really the first Hollywood before Hollywood was discovered. That's where all of the film crews and early film professionals, whether it be executives, investors, directors, motion picture stars of that time, they all congregated there. Now, around 1913 or 1914, Cecil B. DeMille came to town with an actor named Dustin Farnham, and they were looking to shoot a Western. Well, they stopped at the Alexandria Hotel and asked direction for you know, where they could find a barn. They had heard about this place called Hollywood, which was kind of this remote area. It had one large hotel called the Hollywood Hotel, uh, but it still was just surrounded by farms, barns, whatnot. So the Alexandria kind of drew them a map and told them where to go, and then they rented a barn. And then they, that's when they shot their first full-length feature film called The Squaw Man, uh, in Hollywood. Wow. And that was released around, I want to say 1913, 1914. Uh, I'd have to look it up to get the specific year, but they were in town around that time. Now it still took a while for Hollywood to take off as a film capital, but you did have Max Sinnott relocate from New York city to Los Angeles, and you know he's known as the king of comedy. He was the one that did the Keystone Cops, and he had Fatty Arbuckle. He's he signed Charlie Chaplin to his first you know motion picture contract that I'm aware of, and and then he had uh, a bunch of other stars that he had created through his comedy troupe. He settled in a place called Edendale. It's not really known as Edendale anymore, but back then that was the name of the neighborhood and it was right next to Hollywood. And so he started making his reels there. I think he first started in, in actually in downtown Los Angeles and then he relocated further out towards Hollywood and in this Edendale neighborhood. Then you had a, another comedy king. He's less known now, but his name was Al Christie. And he opened up a studio in what is now Hollywood as well. So they were knocking out, they were cranking out these really cheap films. I mean, I remember reading about Al Christie, you might get a kick out of this, but they operated on such a low budget that when it came to like beds and set pieces, they would go to neighbors and they'd work out a deal for like 50 cents, 75 cents. They would rent the bed during the day and move it out of these people's houses, use it as a set piece under condition that they return it in time for bedtime <laughs> and put it back in their beds. There are also stories about pretty girls where if they were seen, they would just send someone out to run them down and say, hey, 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 can you be in my film? You know, can you work for us? And they paid them virtually nothing. But 
you know, today it's quite opposite. You know, now the executives actually run away from anybody wanting to be in the movies. You know, they 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 hide. They don't want to be, you know, accosted by, you know, hundreds and thousands of people looking to get a break in the movies. But back in 1913, they were literally running after people trying to see if they would mind, you know, filling in as an extra. That was like the original Girls there. Gone Wild. <laughs> exactly. Girls Gone Wild, 1913. Well, but, uh, you know, I think uh, some of that did kind of go on <laughs> back then. Um, you know, 19-teens version, mind you. But uh, so what ended up happening is by 1920, stars had made up enough money. It, it became pretty evident that Los Angeles was going to be a permanent home to the motion picture industry. People were actually now buying property and no longer living out of hotels like the Alexandria and the the Hollywood Hotel. I, I think uh, Mary Pickford bought her first house or, or bungalow around 1914, 1915. By, this, by uh, 1917, <clears throat> actually probably earlier than that, by 1915, D.W. Griffith was now just living out of the Alexandria Hotel. He, he wasn't going back to New Jersey much at all. And so as it began, as the film industry began to settle in Los Angeles, they started to spread out. And then that's when Hollywood became Hollywood. And it started becoming Hollywood around 1920. Oh, okay. And as far as, you know, the connection with the film industry and becoming the film capital of the United States and then ultimately the film capital of the world, uh, it was around 1920 where. Uh, People started relocating there, people that worked in the film industry. They started opening restaurants, started opening businesses and developing the boulevard and to cater to, to the motion picture industry. And then you had Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, another really big silent film star. They moved to Beverly Hills around that time. And so the stars just kind of followed them. Charles Chaplin built a home, Beverly Hills. Uh, by the end of the decade, Buster Keaton was living in Beverly Hills. And so there was this big expansion west of downtown Los Angeles. And the Alexandria Hotel, which had been the Rome of the film colony, it fell from grace around that time. The, the movie stars, by 1921, the movie stars and the film producers and directors, they had moved on to other locations. And there were a couple of reasons why they did that. One was prohibition, because you can serve alcohol legally in hotels and in bars and, and nightclubs anymore. So it became very fashionable to serve alcohol in private home parties. So they, you know, the stars would just have these little intimate people, uh, intimate parties. They'd invite you know fifteen, twenty people, and they you know load up the bar. They contact their local bootlegger and and so it became really fashionable to have their their parties at home and then there were some very high class private clubs that served alcohol and one of them was the cafe mont, mont i never can say it it's french montmartre um and that opened along hollywood boulevard and then that was a, a great place for the stars to hang out and not be mobbed by the police 
or vans. And then in 1921, the Ambassador Hotel opened, uh, and that was a world-famous hotel. That was years later. That's where Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated. <clears throat> so it's it's interesting timing because we've got some listeners that have been touching uh, base with us, and you know they were talking about sort of the history of Los Angeles and California. And how, you know, it has way more of a history than I ever realized as far as myths and even indigenous peoples and some sort of sacred, sacred areas on the land. Or did, did you, did your research come across anything, anything like that? Like, do you think there was anything else besides the, just being on the coast and like you were saying in between the mountains and the sea that attracted people to this area at that time? Like any occult reasons or any sort of deeper spiritual things, do you think? Well, the mere fact that Los Angeles, uh, Angeles being Spanish for angels, and the nickname for Los Angeles is the City of Angels, uh, there's always going to be that kind of mystical connotation. Um, yes, there's a lot of legends. Most of them are urban legends uh, about early Los Angeles, like a, the race of lizard people that lived in tunnels. <laughs> under what's now Los Angeles and, and the Pueblo de Los Angeles. And I want to say in the 1920s, there was a there was a person that actually got permission from the city to look for these tunnels. And he started burrowing, uh, or I want to say around Bunker Hill, which is no longer standing, but that was a very, it was used to be a landmark hill. Uh, right near downtown Los Angeles. And he just kind of gave up or disappeared or, or whatnot. He, he didn't disappear like in thin air. He just kind of disappeared like walking away with his tail between his legs. Yeah, like gave you know? up, yeah. Right. Um, but there were, you know, that that's always been a fun legend. In fact, if I ever get a chance to do it, I, I want to do a photo shoot in some of the old tunnels in Los Angeles with someone dressed as a lizard man. I think that would be fun. That's uh, one of my favorite legends. It's been a while since I've revisited it, but it, it was amazing that the city even gave him permission to dig. What they were finding, he did find tunnels, mind you, but uh, some of these tunnels were... There's a lot of reasons for having tunnels back then. Uh, one was just to smuggle things, you know, smugglers din. And then, you know, one of the big legends is that during, you know, prohibition times, they built a lot of tunnels to connect uh, businesses, you know, one building to another. And as one of the legends were that the police were definitely in on it, the Los Angeles Police Department, and that they actually patrolled some of these entrances. Mm. Um and some of these tunnels, partial tunnels, still exist. Uh, but there's been a lot of earthquakes in Los Angeles. It's you know it's earthquake country, so a lot of these tunnels caved in. Some of them, there, there's a hotel in downtown Los Angeles. It was called the King Edward. It's still called the King Edward, but apparently in their basement. They have some old remnants of prohibition and maybe part of a, a tunnel there. 
The problem with going down there is that earthquakes, there, there are doors that can't be opened because the earth is settled through so many earthquakes that these doors are permanently shut. <laughs> I mean, you'd have to tear down the door and that's a safety hazard. But I, I have heard stories where people have found if they could get those doors open, they would, they would find old, you know, alcohol, bottles of alcohol from Prohibition that had been stored down there. Um, so, you know, I hear about these stories every now and then. Um, that's partly why I started Bizarre Los Angeles is because people will tell me things and then sometimes I'll come across it in my own research. I wish I had, you know, the time to research every single story that comes down the pike, but I had to focus more on the haunted, the allegedly haunted hotels around Southern California, and that ended up taking all my time. Yeah, over yeah, the for last sure. Four or five years. Yeah. So, so you didn't really come across any myths from ind- indigenous peoples or anything like that about the about the land connected to any of the places that you researched. Well, you know, Griffith Park is is LA's version of Central Park. It's the largest park in Los Angeles County, mm-hmm. and it supposedly has a curse. Uh, and there has, there's a lot of uh, paranormal activity that that legends of paranormal activity that's attached to that land, and it still goes on today. People love to talk about the the legends. Very few people ever encounter anything paranormal, mind you. It's more legend than it is fact. But you know, apparently it had to do with one family ended up losing their property to another entity who took over, and uh, uh, one of the female family members put a curse on the land saying that no one will prosper from it, no one will own it for long, and and supposedly some things happened, and eventually the park ended up just being deeded to the city of Los Angeles. And the city of Los Angeles has had no problems, you know, with the park. Uh, but there, there are definitely parts of Griffith Park that, you know, have a haunted reputation. They, they, they're the area that is the old zoo. I, I've yet to visit it. I want to. Um, but the old zoo, people have claimed to have heard the sound of zoo animals, even though it's been long abandoned. Um, I don't hear too many claims that I feel that are legitimate about them, but you also have to admit, uh, I also I need to be upfront that I, I tend to be a little cynical and skeptical uh, until I actually see it or experience it myself or meet enough people that are so sincere and so corroborative, uh, convincing can, yeah. And corroborative. And then I'll, I'll believe it without experiencing it. But as far as the sound of zoo animals, you know, I, I kind of have to experience that myself because there's, there can be a lot of explanations for that. Yeah. People locked um, up in cages by drug dealers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's graffiti on those old, you know, walls. So there's definitely, you know, it's definitely a party place or it used to be. Um, so, you know, I, you know, I want to explore it because I never know. I want to see for myself who has been there and, and what types of people 
does it attract? I know that you know it's it's quite a popular location to film, so they'll lease it out the land or permit it out to a film production company that will shoot in and around Griffith Park. But it's a it's a great park. I mean, um, there are some parts that are rarely explored. And I'll hear stories every now and then about a park ranger that gets really wigged out about something, you know, a sound or just a feeling in that park. What's the spookiest of all the ghost stories that uh, you've researched? The spookiest? Boy, that's going to take some thought. Um, I've had some spooky experiences myself and some of them. Yeah, let's hear those. Okay. Um, The one that spooked me the most was in Riverside, California, and that's about an hour and a half drive from Los Angeles. And it is a hotel that was built in the very early 1900s by an eccentric person named Frank Miller. Frank Miller became obsessed with Ramona, the the Helen Hunt Jackson novel that romanticized the Native American Indians of Southern California and uh, the Spanish colonial period. So he wanted to build a fake, a hotel that, that was modeled after a fake California Spanish mission. Okay. So he got money from, you know, a wealthy railroad magnate, Henry Huntington, and he built a hotel that was uh, a little more than $150,000 to build, which was a, a lot of money back then. <clears throat> that hotel has been added on to so over the years, especially between like 1906 and and about 1932. So the styles keep changing. Now, the whole hotel takes up a city block and it's got everything under the sun. It has Japanese influence. It has Gothic, Spanish Gothic influences. It has the, the classic, uh, you know, Spanish mission look it has many different turns and 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 oddities to it so it's always easy to lose your imagination to it and see things that aren't there or there's so many or it will even inspire the imagination mm-hmm. you know i love going there because it's always something always catches my eye well <laughs> i've never had any paranormal experiences where I've actually seen a ghost um, in my life. I always wanted to. Oh, I always thought, well, I'm just going to be one of those people that will never see one. Then I went there in 2009, and I was trying to do a vintage photo shoot um, for just a completely different project I had in mind. And so I, I brought along one model, just myself, and I decided that I would rent some of the more expensive suites, which are on the very top floor of the Mission Inn. And almost immediately, weird things began to happen. And the first thing that happened, we, we shot until like three in the morning on our first night. And then she went downstairs to her room, which just happened to be directly below my suite. And I just crashed on the bed. I mean, I, I was so darn tired from driving and then shooting 
shooting till three. I didn't even, didn't even crawl under the covers, didn't even undress. I just crashed in my clothes and that was it. And then I woke up around 8.30, ran some errands, came back. It was 110 degrees in August in Riverside. <laughs> and as I enter my room to the suite, I could swear someone was inside my suite moving like toiletry items around the bathroom. So I called out, said, hello, I'm here. Anybody here? <laughs> no answer. So I go into the bathroom. Everything's undisturbed. No one's here. I'm by myself. So I thought, huh, that's, a, that's weird. Okay, overactive imagination. Let's move on. So I get on my computer, and I'm just sending emails to people, just saying, hey, how are you? I'm here at the Mission Inn. And I'm waiting for the model to wake up. He's still downstairs. So um, I'm letting her sleep in. So I'm taking care of things. Then suddenly I start hearing weird noises from inside my suite. And before I go on, I was staying in a suite that was called the Carrie Jacobs Bond Suite. I want to say it's like Suite 417 or something like that. Um, now, when it was built in the early 30s, it was not built to be a guest room. It was built to be kind of a social hall for ladies. And they had a few weddings there, but I, I think it didn't become a hotel room until maybe the, you know, 1980s, 1990s, maybe. Oh, wow. But up until that time, it was just a place where people gathered. So it had two tiers. It had um, the main room, which, which, you know, as a hotel room, the main room now has a bed and the TV and a desk and a table and a sofa. But there are some stairs that go to like a loft that overlooks the bed. So I was hearing sounds from upstairs in the loft area, and it sounded like someone was dropping coins one at a time on top of the wooden table uh, upstairs. And I still, I was in the middle of uh, writing a, an email, shooting it off, and I, I was just trying to ignore the sounds. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I try to focus one thing at a time, okay? I didn't want to get distracted by weird coins dropping on the table. But then I start hearing the clack, clack, clack of women's shoes upstairs. And I and I remember exactly that moment. I wrote, I think I've got a ghost. I got to go. Bye. It hit send <laughs> on the email. I grabbed an audio recorder. I had never done an EVP session in my life. EVP stands for electronic voice phenomena. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so I decided I, you know, checked around. I went outside. Nobody was around. I went upstairs, made sure all the doors and windows were closed. And for 10 minutes, I sat down in that loft and asked questions. And I felt like the biggest loser you know, I, I didn't hear any, I didn't hear any sounds, no, no responses whatsoever. And I, I felt kind of silly, really, um, sitting there talking to myself, asking questions. Well, after about 10 minutes, I'm going, well, nothing happened. So I thought I would at least try to play back on the recorder. And sure enough, I found it sounded like a very faint female voice on the recording track. Mm. 
So I got really excited about this. I was like going, no way, because I did not hear any sounds. The air conditioner was running the whole time. There was no way I was going to turn the air conditioner off in 110 degree temperatures outside. So for a female voice to pop in, I couldn't hear what it was saying at the time. So I got all excited. I wanted to share it with everybody that was willing to listen. The model comes up about an hour later, about one o'clock, and she, I'm, I, I, I tell her, you've got to hear this. You've got to hear this. Do you hear what I hear? And she heard it, and then she said, by the way, you weren't moving furniture around at five in the morning. <laughs> you. Well, and I was like going, no. <laughs> and she said that she was just falling asleep, and it sounded like someone was dragging something really heavy right above her head, which would have been my sleep. And I was like, no, I was asleep. I, I slept through everything. You know, I, I didn't, there was no one, you know, why would I even move furniture at five in the morning? So I went down and talked to the front desk and I let her hear the little voice on my recorder. And I told her the story about the, the you know, the model hearing the sound of furniture being moved. And the woman who worked the front desk said, that's very interesting because you're the third person to tell me this story about the furniture moving at five in the morning. And I said, oh, really? And she said, yes, you know, we'll get a phone call from, from that room. And they want me to, to call, you know, the suite at five in the morning. And she said, I never did that because I was afraid to. Uh, because what if they weren't moving furniture? Then you, you've got them all excited and irritated because you woke them up. Or you might spook them by saying, oh, were you moving furniture? Because someone said they were hearing furniture being moved. So I assured her that I wasn't moving furniture. So that was the first day, first full day. Then the second day, nothing happened. Then on the third day, I moved from that suite where I'd been shooting to another suite. And for whatever reason, I hated this suite. It was like the most popular suite at the Mission Inn. It's called the Alhambra Suite. It, it's gorgeous. I've always wanted to stay there. Well, now I'm staying there, and I can't stand it. There is something so heavy about the atmosphere at that place mm. that I could not get comfortable and one of the weirdest things happened real early in that, that day, just as we moved in, I'm trying, I'm under a table trying to hook up my internet connection. So I hear this loud bang from the next room, which was the den. I was in the bedroom at the time. And the model, her name's Rena, she was standing with me, right next to me while I'm under the table. And so she turns around and looks where the noise, where the noise came from. And I didn't see this, but she looked a little pale when she told me that what she had witnessed was on one of the tables in the den, there was a bottle of water, plastic clear bottle of water, and then there was a glass with water poured into the glass. Well, the water in the glass was swishing around back and forth madly but the bottled water 
the water was still and wasn't moving at all. Oh, that's weird. So she kind of determined that the glass might have moved and had disturbed the water, but the bottle, which was right next to it, was still. Hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Made a middle note. Nothing much I could do about that. I think plastic block stuff, right? Pardon? Like if it it was some sort of entity or force, like plastic plastic blocks it. Like I know you can't, like, you can't do kind of? affirmations on a plastic water bottle. Oh, you can't? Things like that, no. Or put crystals on a plastic water bottle, it doesn't work. Oh, just glass? Just glass. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, later on that night, that's when I saw my first ghost. And it, it's a, it's an interesting, uh, it was an interesting experience to say the least. One that I, I won't forget anytime soon. But I had had just a horrible night trying to shoot. Nothing was going right. I just felt like, I kept saying, I kept telling Rena, I just felt like there's an old saying, waiting for the, the other shoe to drop. That was what I was feeling. I just had the feeling something was going to happen. And I didn't know what it was. So I get a call on my cell phone about midnight, a little after. And I take the phone call, and I'm talking for about 15 minutes. And then as I get off the phone, and I'm outside in the courtyard talking. And then as I'm I end the phone call, and I'm walking back across the courtyard on the fourth floor, back to the doors to the um, Alhambra suite. And something catches my eye to the left. So I look. And the way the Mission Inn, as I had mentioned earlier, the Mission Inn's architecture is kind of scattered and all over the place. Well, to the left of me was an open mouth hallway that looks a little bit like a dungeon. Um, it's, it's kind of round instead of what you would think would be like a square or a rectangular hallway. It, it was kind of curved and was completely done in brick which is why it looks a little bit like a dungeon. Now, it had really strong lights, and the lights were strong enough to where it threw little shadows on the bricks. The bricks created their own shadows. And there were a couple of alcoves that led to other suites, one to the left and one to the right. So at the far end of this, it's not a long hallway, but at the far end of the hallway is a glass door that leads inside the hotel. And you can literally see, you know, the other side of the door and there's a stained glass window. And it's just a real surreal little hallway. And when I was looking down the hallway, I was trying to take inventory of what I was seeing or not seeing. So I'm going, okay, light, seeing shadows caused by the bricks. I see the glass door, see the stained glass window through the glass door, and then I see a shadow. Nothing wrong here. So I go back and and go, well, let me take an inventory again. So, okay, shadows on the bricks, lights are okay, not flickering, glass door, stained glass window, shadow on the right. And then just as I was like going, what is causing the shadow on the right? The shadow whips around and disappears (laughs) down an alcove. Wow. And, and, I was like a deer in headlights for about two, three seconds. I was, I was just shocked because I was convinced that that was a shadow. It looked a little bit 
human-like in that it looked like it was wearing a cowl, which is actually a classic description of a shadow person. I didn't know this at the time. Um, so it, to me, it was just inky black. And the only thing I can remember and why it caught my eye the second time was that I was just beginning to think that shadow looked darker than all the other shadows I'm seeing in this hallway. And it looked very two-dimensional, but when it moved, it moved super fast. And I've just never seen a shadow move and disappear behind a corner before. And I went down that alcove after a couple of seconds of, you know, standing there bug-eyed. And there was only two places where that shadow person could have gone. One was to an empty suite off to the left. And then the other door was going right into the bedroom I was going to sleep in that night. So that, that creeped me out, okay? That was my most disturbing moment, to answer your question 20 minutes ago or so. Uh, so I walked in going, I can't believe this. I just saw something. And it wasn't something out of the corner of my eye. I saw it straight forward, and it was only about 20 feet ahead of me. Um, I tried to start shooting again, and it kept sounding like footsteps were overhead. And it also sounded at times like someone was throwing rocks on the roof. And it got so bad that I went outside in the courtyard to see if I could surprise some prankster trying to screw with me. And not only was there nobody up there, but there was nothing to throw on the roof of this hotel to make that kind of sound. Um, so I walked back in, I, I turned on the recorders hoping to catch these sounds, but by this time the sounds had kind of died out. And then by four in the morning, I was so tired that I could sleep in that bedroom <laughs> and not worry about anything because all I wanted was sleep. But I had to exhaust myself to that point. That was the only way I was going to sleep in that suite that night. So I only slept for about three hours before I was awakened by a door slamming at about 7, 7.30 in the morning. And I jumped up, looked down the hallway, no one was around, and then I proceeded to pack. And the atmosphere was a little lighter, but it still didn't feel right to me. And then when I checked out, I asked the front desk clerk about who else was staying up on that floor that night. And she said that I was the only one up there that had a suite um, on the entire fourth floor. And so then I asked about the slamming door to the staff had, was staff making up a room or was staff, you know, going through these empty suites at 7, 7.30 in the morning. And because everything's key carded, she was able to look to see if anyone entered or not, that was staff. And so she checked and she said no one had been up there. So I was like, okay, well, thank you. <laughs> I heard a, I heard a door slam and she apologized, but you know, that was the least of my worries. <laughs> I drove home and I slept with the light on in my house for the next 10 days. And I started contacting everyone I knew that was in the paranormal. What is a shadow person? Oh, yeah. I'd seen, I'd seen shadow people 
as portrayed on Ghost Hunters and some of the TV shows. And I didn't believe in them at all. I always thought, oh, that's fake. Oh, that's just a person in the shadow. You know, that's just, you know, people are seeing things that aren't there. But I had to eat crow on that one because I literally saw a shadow person. And so I had to rethink my position on that. So now I'm a reluctant believer, but yes, I believe in shadow people. Wow. How tall was he? Oh, he was short. It or it was short. It was I would say it was uh about five foot two, five foot three. Hmm. So was there any was, was there any correlation between like the furniture moving or anything like that? If you go back and like did you I mean, I can imagine if I was in that instance i would want to go back and hear like some of the history of like what happened in that place you know when it was a common area and in the early 1900s was there any anything that would lead you to believe that there was some sort of residue or like haunting left over that place yes uh that's that's as quick an answer as i can give you uh to expand on that is I didn't know that that room 417 or the Carrie Jacobs Bond room, I didn't know that 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 was a social hall or social room at that time. I I looked it up later. I should point out that uh, I did listen to the voice when I got home. And it was a woman that sounded like she was directly answering my question. I had asked, do you want to come closer so that we can talk? And this woman, a very faint voice, said, sure, I would love that. Then she said something unintelligible. And then she said very forlornly, I want to go home. Wow. Do you still have that audio? I do. Can you send it so we can play it in the app? Yeah. 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 You can (laughs) do that. And that was the first. EVP that I ever caught, and it 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 chilled me. It it bugged me. Um, interesting that it, it's a woman's voice in what was once a woman's social hall. Yeah. You know, a, yeah. a, kind of a, a a female parlor. You know, um, I don't. You know, Frank Miller, the person that owned and built the hotel, he actually received an award from the Emperor of Japan in that room around 1932 or 1933, but it's not really known. The room is not really known as being a place where men really kind of hung around. It was really designed as just a social room, card room. You know, um, you would have showers, you know, bridal showers there, maybe a couple of weddings there, but it it was mostly a a female-oriented room when it was created with that in mind. So I did pick up a female there. Now as for the history, the fourth floor is actually where the Miller family, members of the Miller family lived and died. And that's the long standing legend is that the family members that died there haunt that area. So that includes Frank Miller, the person that built the hotel. Um, there have been reports of people seeing someone dressed in like a Franciscan cowl. 
in different parts of the hotel. The area where I had seen my shadow person, which again, I'm, was short, but it was in the area where the owner's sister had died and she was short. Hmm. Now, Frank Miller, he was about my height. He was about 5'10", 5'9", um, 5'10". So I don't think it was him, although he was known to wear a cowl and dress as a Francis, you know, he was so enamored with um, the Franciscan uh, priest who, I hope I'm getting my, I'm not Catholic, so uh, Father Sarah, Junipera Sarah, was the person that started most of the California missions in Cal- and during the Spanish occupation of California. Now, Junipera Serra had nothing to do with Riverside, where this fake mission and hotel was built. But Frank Miller, the owner who built the mission in, he was enamorated uh, with uh, Father Serra. So he would dress, you know, at holiday time, like Christmas time. They do all this pageantry stuff. So he would he would don a Franciscan friar habit and parade around as you know, Father Sarah, um, the locals called him Father Frank, you know, as kind of a a friendly little jab at him. But uh, so, you know, there is some precedence to the legend about someone seeing someone wandering around wearing a, a Franciscan habit. Um, so, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I definitely believe that Frank Miller personality fits what I believe would be uh, a ghost there. Yeah. And you've and seen, and you've seen other I, ones since then too. I did, or at least I thought I did. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, when I went back a couple of years later to do a shoot, uh, at the mission Inn again, I rented all the area, you know, I rented the Carrie Jacobs bond suite again. Um, I rented the Alhambra suite again. I even stayed in, in uh, the suite that was empty where the, the shadow person, you know, either went into that suite or it went into where, the bedroom where I, you know, slept the first time I was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and I, and that was that suite, the other suite, the one that was empty, uh, it has a, it's has a haunted reputation too. It has a metal spiral staircase. And a lot of people online claim that that's the bridal suite. It isn't. But the ghost story, the first ghost story that emerged about that suite happened around, oh, 1992 or so. And it was a husband and bride, uh, husband and wife that took that suite on their wedding night. And I guess they were climbing up that metal staircase and they thought someone was trying to push them off the staircase, something invisible. So they checked out in the middle of the night, and that story's been told and retold and retold time and time again. So that was the empty suite where the shadow person either went into or he went into the the Alhambra suite where I was going to sleep, the bedroom area. Mm. So when I came back in 2012, I rented all these rooms, and I actually stayed in the suite that had the metal staircase. Nothing happened during the three, four days that I was there, we did catch 
uh, EDPs once again in the Kerry Jacobs bond suite, but it, it, we couldn't tell whether I can I couldn't tell you whether it was a female or a male. Um, it was just the real raspy voice that just said something brief. Um, what was my point? <laughs> I think it was about your your sighting that you thought my you second, saw. Yeah. My second ghost, yeah. my second ghost sighting. Right, we um, we captured one good EVP from Aunt Alice's suite, which was across from the tunnel, um, and it was it was a voice telling them to get out. The 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 people that I had doing the EVP session, I wasn't there because I was shooting elsewhere. But my brother was part of the suite, and so I sent him there with with someone to conduct like a 10, 15 minute uh, EDP session. So we really, aside from that, we didn't really have a lot of paranormal experiences there. It was really kind of an easygoing shoot. But on the final night that I was there, everyone was having dinner at, at the restaurant at the Mission Inn, and I decided to walk around and scout out where to shoot next after dinner. And as I was walking through the lobby and the lobby had quite a few people around, it wasn't crowded by any means, but you know, there was probably a dozen to half dozen people around. But as I'm walking along this, across this lengthwise, this long, you know, lobby, I see what looks like an opaque, monochromatic woman wearing a dress all the way down to her feet, hair in a bun, no face to speak of, but she was very regal, and her hands were kind of clasped together at the waist, um, kind of like the way a woman would, would carry herself back then. Um, you know, arms bent at the elbows, clasped, hands clasped together, and it was just above, around her navel. But she's not walking. She's kind of gliding from one doorway to another doorway. And I stopped in my tracks, and I looked around. I didn't see anyone else noticed her that I could tell. But my immediate thought was, in this hallway where I'd seen her, and there, it was cordoned off, by the way. There was a velvet uh, barrier, you know, um, like they have at theaters where, you know, you can't walk past this, this point. So it was, she, was, she was on the other side of this velvet um, barrier that was uh, off limits to regular folks like me. And so when I saw her, I immediately crossed over there, and I was thinking, is someone else doing a photo shoot like I am? Is someone else doing a vintage shoot? So I crossed over there, and I didn't, I couldn't, you know, walk past the, the barrier, but I just stood there, and I looked, and I listened for about two, three minutes, and there was no sounds in any of the area below that. <laughs> Uh, there were some stairs that went down to the Cloister Music Room. That's the old name for it. They they since renamed a lot of these rooms, but the historic name for it is the Cloister Hall Music Room. Uh, I could hear no sounds coming from there. There was nobody around. So then I turned back, and I started just looking at everybody else. 
hoping that I could at least make eye contact with someone that would look at me and I would know immediately that they had seen it too, what I had seen. Yeah, yeah. And everyone was so wrapped up in their own conversations, they didn't even notice me standing there. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I just decided to shrug it off and keep walking. But I swear, I, I just don't see ghosts. I don't even have an imagination that pretends to see ghosts. And uh, and over the over time, I I discovered that these are actually, I shouldn't write this off as overactive imaginations. I used to do that because I used to listen to skeptical arguments all the time. Yeah. And that's the number one skeptical argument is you're nuts. Yeah. You didn't see anything. Um, there have been too many times where that just hasn't been the case because someone else had seen something in the same location at a yeah, different time. Exactly. Yeah, there's too many little little events and synchronicities and coincidences that, that to, to just make you know to say that everybody's just making it up or they're just seeing things. Well, that that's what happened. Years later, I met a Dawson who was on his way out. Uh, he was leaving, and he didn't. You know, the Dawsons that run the tours at the mission and they have a policy: don't talk about ghosts. Ghosts don't exist. Don't talk about them comes high up from the owners. No wow. ghosts. Wow. And so when I tried to tell him this, he's like, don't, oh, well, don't talk about it here, you know? And, uh, but after the tour, we talked about it. And he said that people have seen that same woman in the same darn area. Wow. There you go. Yeah. Huh. So you cover a bunch and of, just, sorry to interrupt. Keep going. Oh, I, I'm just saying, and the same thing is true of where I saw the shadow person. I found online where someone said that they had seen a ghost in that same exact hallway <laughs> where I had seen my shadow person. Yeah. So again, this is, you know, this kind of corroboration makes me feel a lot more secure in saying, yes, you know, I would say it was well over 50% sure that I saw what I saw hundred yeah. percent sure with the shadow person Yeah. yeah. because it was matrixing in reverse. I thought it was a shadow. <laughs> I interpreted it as a shadow. It wasn't until it whipped around out of sight was I forced to confront that it wasn't a shadow. Yeah, yeah. So so you did, uh, in this book, your first book here, this uh, Haunted by History, Volume 1, uh, you've got a bunch yes. of hotels in there. And I did want to ask you, um, Jessica sent some questions because she knew um, we were having you on here, and she's from... Uh, from California. And she was talking about, um, did you, did you, were you going to put the Roosevelt hotel on, on Hollywood Boulevard in there at all? And, and she, she wants to ask extensively about the, the hotel del Coronado, but I, and actually I didn't think you guys put that in there, but that's in there, right? That's a little bit more South, isn't it? The hotel del Coronado is definitely in there. Yeah. Um, I did do a shoot here. Here's the, I did not do the Hollywood Rose, and here's and here's why. The ghost story started after the hotel had a renovation. I want to say either in the late 1970s or early 1980s, and it became a very talked about hype covered by the media haunted hotel mm -hmm. for decades. Mm -hmm. Then it sold eventually. Uh, to uh, 
a corporation based out of New York City. And they do not want to talk about the ghosts at all. That's why the Marilyn Monroe mirror where people have claimed that they've seen her you know, reflection in the glass, that's why it was removed from the place that it had been. Um, some stories saying it's in storage. I'm not sure. I haven't looked for that mirror, so I don't know if it's where it is. It could be somewhere in the hotel. It may not be. But I did contact the Hollywood Roosevelt to ask about doing a shoot there. And they basically answered that they don't really like to talk about the ghost, but they would have to go through the corporate office in New York City to get permission. And I have so many locations that don't make me jump through hoops of fire <laughs> exactly. to get permission that yeah. I decided that I, I'm just not going to. I'm not going to audition for them. Maybe further down the line, yeah. I will. Yeah, exactly. But after after your now, first after your first book is out or something like that, and... right. And maybe once they see, you know, the the approach that I take um, to the hotels, because I really, you know, try to get the facts right, and I actually get more hung up on the history than I do the hauntings. The hauntings are fun. Yeah. Um, it's especially fun when they happen to you. You know, I don't, I don't ever advocate that these places are scary. Although, you know, seeing the shadow person scared me for about 10 days because it literally, uh, ripped what my belief were, you know, it, it like opened, a, it opened a, a whole new can of theories that I had to now process and contend with. So, you know, when, whenever something challenges my perception of the world, of course it's disturbing. You yeah. know, um, it would be disturbing for anybody. But as far as it really being a frightening experience, if I were to see it again, I don't think I would be nearly as frightened because I've come to accept it for what it is. Right. Do you think that uh, it's interesting you're do doing these shoots in these old hotels where there's, you know, um, rumors of hauntings and stuff like that. Do you think that there's anything about, uh, you know, you, you recreating these scenes or, or actually putting the energy that you put in that it has some sort of conjuring effect or energy that opens things up at all, or you ever thought about in, in that I, way? I hope so. I hope so. That was the plan. Like if any of the models reported anything strange. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And in 2009, you know, this happened at the Mission Inn. Again, I wasn't shooting for the book. It just happened. But I was doing a vintage theme shoot. So by the time I decided to do the book, which was in 2011, that's when I decided I'm going to do it, but we're going to do it this way. And the whole purpose of the shoots, besides making really interesting photos, was that I, I would rent all of the haunted places that I could find yeah. <laughs> that, that the hotel would allow me to, to, to rent. And we would camp out there for three, four days, and we would shoot in these areas. And I would bring, you know, anywhere from three to six, seven models, and each one would have their own room. And because we worked around the clock, sometimes we would shoot at the weird, at weird hours of the morning, uh, late at night. 
Um, rarely did we shoot in the mornings, but that's usually when we all were sleeping in. Yeah. But about one or two in the afternoon to about three in the morning, we'd be shooting off and on in these areas. And right after we would shoot, we would leave the room and we would monitor it. Or we'd do an EVP session, then we would just leave the quarters uh, overnight and then listen to the audio. We would choose the slowest time of the week preferably out of season, so that we had some control over the environment mm -hmm. as, best as, as best as we could. And that's, that's how we, you know, that was how we conducted it. And I would always choose a theme. You know, I grew up reading parapsychology books, so I, I tend to think like a parapsychologist more than a ghost hunter. And I believe in psych, using psychology. So I would oftentimes would pick a theme that I would wonder, would this elicit some kind of paranormal response, assuming we're, you know, I'm working completely under the assumption that what is haunting there is, has intelligence. Yeah. Is an intelligent energy form. And I want to confuse them, but, um, but not in a mean way. But if I could find a way where if I can pick and choose the right era, it might confuse them into wanting to interact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Or participate in it. And this theory has many different names. Uh, I think Ghost Hunters International called it the Singapore effect. They did it on a very m small Scale where they would just like play music from like the 1920s and then turn oh, it off okay, and then okay. ask questions. Yeah. yeah, I what I'm doing is taking it to a whole different, sophisticated level. I'm literally, if someone, if the legend says someone committed suicide in this room due to a failed romance, I will stage that romance, I won't stage the suicide. Uh, but I'll stage the romance, uh, and then we'll see what happens. That's a great idea. And uh, and oftentimes, uh, something sometimes something would happen, but it wouldn't be on cue. It happened a little bit later, but on a couple of occasions, things did in fact happen during the shoot. Oh wow! And that that's always fun, <laughs> especially when you have witnesses. That's always a lot of fun. Do you have um, an example? Yes. Let's go back to the Alexandria hotel, uh -huh. which I had talked about being the birthplace of the motion picture industry, uh, the social scene for the motion picture industry. Yeah. Um, there was a suite called the Valentino suite. <laughs> up on the, ten, uh, the top floor of the Alexandria Annex, which was opened in 1911. It was not part of the original building, but it was an annex that was added a few years later. It was named the Valentino Suite in the 1970s uh, in honor of Rudolph Valentino. And a lot of people today think that they named it the Valentino Suite because Valentino actually stayed there. That's not true. Nobody knows where Valentino's, Rudolph Valentino stayed. He did, in fact, stay at the Alexandria Hotel, but all those records are long gone. Mm -hmm. So in 1970, 
a couple of people that were hired to redecorate the hotel. They chose a Victorian era theme, and they just happened to name the the Valentino Suite after uh, they named a haunted suite that uh, after Valentino, not realizing that it was a haunted suite. So when I went in there to shoot the first time, it still had that 1970 ratty look. I mean, nothing had been done to this hotel room this week since probably 1970. Nothing positive. I mean, the the, the Victorian reproduction furniture was in shambles. The once deep red carpet was now Pepto-Bismol pink from the sun and the heat. And a lot of fruit flies, you know, because the windows were sealed open. They've since... They've since changed that for safety reasons, obviously, because uh, you're on a top floor of a of a very old building. You don't want to have wide open windows that can't be shut. Mm-hmm. But when we were there, the leasing I asked the leasing agent who leased us the space to shoot. I said, "Well, what's the latest ghost story here?" He said, "Well, a photographer was here a couple of months back, and he was shooting, and this door slammed shut on him." And I said, which door? And so he showed me the door and I went, ah, cross breeze. You know, that's what I'm thinking. Cross breeze. No, no paranormal thing here. So <clears throat> on the day that I shoot, uh, we were there early in the morning and all through the day, there wasn't a lot of cross breeze going on. We fumigated the place to get rid of the fruit flies. So we'd have to leave for like 30 seconds at a time or 30 minutes at a time. I mean, uh, and then we were shooting you know, by late afternoon, we got off our shots and then it got dark and that place got really gloomy at night. <laughs> this, this old decrepit suite. uh, after hours, the leasing agent came in and he was helping. So I put him in the front room while I'm in the bedroom shooting uh, a model named Carly. And we had a, hair and makeup and my brother. And so there was only like four or five of us, you know, in the suite. So I put the leasing agent in the back room with the spotlight, just said, just shine it on the model. And so he's alone back there. And the rest of us are in the, literally in the bedroom where the set was built. And so I'm trying to get the shot. And suddenly the leasing agent says, man, can you kind of hurry? I'm getting kind of scared back here. <laughs> And I'm like going, uh, no problem. I'll get it. I'll get, I'll get to it. Give me like five, 10 minutes. Suddenly this door from that back room slams shut. (laughs) It just, it it slams shut with such power that all of the glass in, in like two, three rooms rattled. Wow. And the leasing agent screamed. (laughs) And he, I just said, calm down, hold the spotlight. And that spotlight, he was shaking so hard that that spotlight was trembling on the model. I mean, it was very comical. Uh, but I had to assure everybody, look, if this is paranormal, this is the only thing that's going to happen, okay? Um, so let's just get the shot, then we'll we'll look into it. But, you know, paranormal usually just happens sporadically. Uh, we, we don't know what it is. Chances are it's not going to happen again. So let's just get the shot. 
so we got the shot. Hmm. Interesting. So they, all, down. so they all reacted and they kind of, you kind of had to calm everybody down. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Even I jumped. I mean, I, I, but I was, I was again, when I'm, I'm more in a little more interested in getting a good shot than looking for ghosts when I'm on the shoot, when I'm on the job. So, um, but I will get interrupted or distracted every now and then. But I was so close to getting the shot. I really just wanted to get the shot. Then we'd, we'd, we'd go stunned. Yeah, yeah. Well, after I got the shot, um, I, I went back to that door to the room that had slammed shut. And there was no way that that could have been a cross breeze because it was to a, a bathroom that had no windows for one thing. It wasn't in the cross breeze area in the first place. Second of all, we're talking about a suite that hadn't been updated since 1970. So the tile floors were warped and this door uh, prior to it slamming shut, we had tried to close it and it couldn't close. I mean, I thought it was permanently wedged open because of the uneven tile. So I'm not into forcing anything. So if it didn't budge, we leave it, yeah. you know, let's not, let's not do it. So I opened it and I, and you know, and I wedged it back to where it was before it slammed and it took almost three quarters of an inch of my arm strength to unwedge it so that it could slam loud enough to make the windows rattle throughout the place. So it would have had to have been almost like a hurricane force wind to have made that door uh, unstick from from warped tiles and slam shut. So obviously not a cross breeze. So I have no explanation for it other than the story is true. What the leasing agent told me about the other other photographer that had been there a couple of months before and had a door slam. Well, the same darn thing happened to me. And so I thought that was a, that was a neat story. And I had never had anything like that happen to me before where a door just slammed with such force that, you know, it frightened all of us. Yeah. That's a good one. So what about the hotel? Uh, what about that uh, Del Coronado? Was anything interesting about that one? Wasn't that really old? Like that's back in what eighteen eighty eight? That one where um, it was supposed to be like the best, the best of the West. Like there was something about showing off Western civilization or something like that. You got it. You got it. It was built in eighteen eighty eight. Um, well, it it wasn't built. It was built in eighteen eighty seven. It opened in eighteen eighty eight. Uh, it was supposed to be the talk of the Western world, and it was. Big, sprawling hotel built on a peninsula that is often mistaken as an island, but it's actually a peninsula off of the coast of San Diego. And it's called the Coronado Peninsula, and surprisingly enough, it's not part of San Diego, the city of San Diego. It's its own city. Oh, that's weird. Uh, Coronado. Well. San Diego tried to annex it, but all the rich people that were living there voted against it. So they voted to stay autonomous. And so this this Hotel Del Coronado was like this Camelot, you know, sitting in Southern California, facing the city of San Diego. And the people that built it 
uh, well, let's put it this way. It wasn't the people that built it so much as the person that ended up owning it a couple of years later, a man by the name of Spreckles, John Spreckles. He basically took over the city of San Diego. He was so wealthy. Uh, and it was real, it's a real interesting concept that the city Coronado on the peninsula, Coronado Peninsula, was not part of San Diego, but the owner of that hotel and the owner of Coronado basically owned San Diego. You know, it was, it, it's almost like he just turned the tables. And, and ran with it. Um, the hotel has a famous ghost, and the hotel markets it now and does a wonderful job marketing it. Uh, when when did they change? When did they change that around? When did they? When change, did they like when did they the start? Ghost? Did they just start to market it recently after like the last five ten years of all the you know the ghost shows and all that, or was it something? No, no, they did get outed as being haunted. I mean, for years, the hotel, for decades, the hotel was rumored to be haunted and the, and the hotel denied, denied, denied. Then in the, around the 1870s, the stories grew so strong that the hotel really was losing the battle of trying to say that the hotel is not haunted. They couldn't, they couldn't contain it anymore. It was leaking (laughs) out into the press in 1983. One of you know, pres, uh, vice, he was vice president at the time, but uh, George Bush, the elder Bush, he was vice president and staying at the Hotel Del Coronado. And one of the Secret Service agents had a paranormal experience. <laughs> and he actually asked to be moved. Once he found out he was in one of the haunted rooms, he asked to be moved. And that made national news. And it be, and, uh, and then finally, they couldn't deny it anymore. Uh, in 1983, someone came up with the idea that it was Kate Morgan, and it was a it was a historian and a professor in San Diego, and he was doing research trying to figure out what the, this Victorian era female ghost that has been seen for years. Who is she, and why is she haunting this room? So he he stumbled across a suicide that had happened in 1892, and it's a mysterious death. Some people still contend that it isn't a suicide, although that's what the official record is. But it's basically a woman that showed up on Thanksgiving Day in 1892 alone with just one bag, not even a big bag, but just a bag. And she had the hotel signer in as Lottie. A Bernard. She didn't even sign the register herself. They put her in a room and she started acting very peculiar according to, you know, the original records. And she acted like she was in pain. She was constantly asking about the whereabouts of her brother. Is he arriving? That the brother has, you know, the luggage. Then she tells the you know the bellboy that she's sick, but that her do- her brother is a doctor and he's going to look after her. Uh, and it, this went on for several days. The doctor never showed up. No, nor did a brother. Uh, her pain got worse, it seems. And then 
she went into town one day and she bought a revolver. And that night she was seen looking out at the beach. It was a stormy night at, at Coronado and it was raining and cold weather at the Hotel Del Coronado. And then the next morning, I want to say a gardener was going about his rounds. He was either a gardener or an electrician, and he found this woman's body on the steps going to the beach. And the gun was nearby, and there was blood on the stairs. And so they called the coroner. The coroner came out, with the sheriff from San Diego, and they determined that it was a suicide and they were just trying to find someone to identify the body because she hadn't signed the register. She didn't have anything in her possession that had her name or, identi or some kind of identifying paperwork. So they did a police sketch of her and, and a basic um, description, and then they sent it to police stations around the country a few newspapers picked it up, and then that's when the story started. And that's when the, you know, the, a lot of these tabloid newspapers started conducting their own investigation as to who the beautiful stranger, now sitting dead, in the morgue of the uh, city of San Diego, who this identity was. And it became a wild goose chase. And there were a lot of hearsay, a lot of gossip, but eventually. The city of Los Angeles solved the, the crime. The police department in Los Angeles actually solved the crime. And it, it, was, it started out as a missing persons report. There was a, a person in Los Angeles who had a house servant that said, told him that she was going to San Diego on business, but that she would be back in time for Thanksgiving. Well, he never showed up again. So the you know, the, the the employer called the LAPD and they filed a missing person report. The police came out, they looked in her possessions in her trunk, and then they found out that this woman was suspiciously like the woman that was sitting dead in San Diego. And there was enough information where the Los Angeles police were satisfied and the San Diego police were satisfied that the woman's identity was that of Kate Morgan, who worked as a domestic for a family in Los Angeles. Nobody ever identified the body. Uh, no one literally saw the body and said, that's her. They just based it on circumstantial evidence. They contacted once they determined that it was Kate Morgan, they did contact Kate Morgan's next of kin who wired back saying, just bury the body and send me the bill and I'll pay for it. So they buried her in a, in a cemetery in San Diego in an unmarked grave for years. It now has a marker, but you know, for almost 70, 80 years, it didn't have anything. And so that's the story of Kate Morgan. Who was she really? You know, what were the circumstances? And there have been so much written about her and so many conspiracy theories. Was she pregnant? Did she have an abortion? You know, was the was the was it her ex husband that murdered her? You know, why did she change her name? Why was she Lottie Bernard? And even the woman Kate Morgan 
when they when the police looked into her possession, she was going by another name. She wasn't even going by Kate Morgan while working as a domestic. She was going by Katie Logan, I think was her name. So it, it's it's a big mess. Uh, but the, is there is there legit sightings? So? Yes, I believe so. I haven't seen her, but there have been legitimate sightings through the years of a woman wearing a black dress from the 1880s, 1890s, uh, wandering around the, the hallways. What's interesting, though, is there's always, you know, a lot of answers to your questions are, unfortunately, they're yes and no's. That's <laughs> so okay. The yes. The no is actually very interesting, too. When this historian came up with the Kate Morgan story, which had been forgotten for, you know, many, many, many years, uh, he was trying to explain the paranormal activity in a room on the top floor of the Hotel Del Coronado. That turned out to not be the room that Kate Morgan stayed in. They actually were able to determine the correct room that Kate Morgan stayed in was on the third floor, and they they discovered that room in 1989. Or, yeah, 1989. And suddenly that room became haunted <laughs> after they discovered the real room uh, Kate Morgan stayed in. Suddenly that room became haunted almost overnight. Um, now I will have a few people that will say, oh, no, no, the, the, that room was probably haunted before then. They just, no one put two and two together. But <clears throat> until I see, my answer to that is until I see that any kind of documentation, I can't say that in all clarity, but I can say that that room became almost immediately haunted after the correct room was identified. No one's ever been able to explain what is haunting that top room. And I, I would give you the room number, except that it's changed like three times in the last 40 years. So if I give you a room number, I'm worried that it might be wrong. But, you know, you can Google it. You can look it up um, and you'll you'll find what room I'm talking about. It's, it's known for poltergeist activity. Mm. And so that hasn't that hasn't been resolved. That particular room and that haunting hasn't been resolved. Now, what I did with my book and with my chapter, and it's the first time anyone's done this. And believe me, I've looked at everything written about the Queen. Uh, I mean, I almost said Queen Mary. That too, but uh, the Hotel Del Coronado. And what I was able to determine that between 19, uh, excuse me, between 1890 and 1980, there were over 30 deaths recorded at the Hotel Del Coronado. So it isn't just about Kate Morgan. Right. Now, would you Kate say that is, is that, is that quite a bit more than norm, what would normally happen in a hotel, do you think? I don't think so, but some of these deaths are very unusual, oh, and that okay. is abnormal. I mean, there's murders 
there were murders on that property that no one talked about. There are also some unexplained deaths where the cause was never fully determined um, on that property as well. Um, then you you know you have you have a few you have a few heart attacks. You have a few people that just kind of died of of uh, well. You have to remember, or maybe I should clarify this rather than having ask you to remember something you probably don't know. But when the when the Hotel Del Coronado opened in 1888, it was built as a health resort as well as a vacation resort. So they were piping in mineral water, and because of the ocean air uh, coming from the Pacific, they were really touting this as like the rich person's sanitarium. <laughs> they had two doctors on staff. Uh, to see to it. So they were wanting wealthy people if they didn't want to go to a sanitarium, but they had, you know, some kind of ailment. They were encouraged to check in at the Hotel Del Coronado and hopefully the ocean air would help their, you know, suspected tuberculosis or, or, you know, gout or whatever you're, you know, suffering, suffering from rheumatism, uh, the maladies of the day. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people were checking in for that, and people were dying, you know, because they were checking in sickly and unhealthy, and and it didn't really help their condition. They were too far gone. Also, it wasn't a hospital, mind you. It, it was a health resort, but there were no real strong medical facilities on Coronado, so... If you were sick or you had something wrong with you, I mean, you had to wait to, to take the boat to San Diego to get to a hospital uh, if, it was, if it were serious enough. That's why the deaths really began to taper off at the, at the hotel once transportation improved. And you got medical facilities, not just on Coronado, but, you know, you, you can now drive from the peninsula to the city without having to take a ferry boat or whatnot. Uh, the reason why you couldn't just drive back in the early 20th century to a peninsula, you would think, well, peninsula means, you know, water surrounding, you know, three fourths of a piece of land. But the fourth part of this piece of land was actually, uh, did have water, but it was very shallow. It was so. Sh it was only like maybe a foot, two feet deep, at times. So you couldn't really call it an island, even though it was surrounded by water, because one side of that peninsula, the water was so shallow that uh, it, it couldn't technically be called an island. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. So what? Uh, what do you got? Like, you've did, when this book is coming out soon in June, I think. <laughs> That's what I'm hoping. That's what you're yeah, hoping? I got the final. I, I got the final um, plotter today. I, I just downloaded it before coming on and talking to you guys. So once I approve of that, which I pretty much guarantee you, I'm approving it. Uh, it goes right to print, so it should be here in in uh, June and uh, and available. Sure. It's uh, what I did over from. You know, over the course of many years, is I, I covered 16 hotels. Okay. But because the, the history, and even the haunted history, 
can get so complex and so detailed that I decided to, rather than just kind of whitewash everything and just stick to the mere basic stuff that you can find in any book on the subject, I wanted to offer something that's very complete. Once someone reads this, they will have as much knowledge as a historian would, and they would have a very working knowledge to go as to evaluating whether these ghost stories are true or not. Uh, it also has, it's also a picture book. So there's a lot of historical photos as well as the photos that I took. Nice. Cause I don't think you can really understand my photos unless you see what it was actually like in its heyday. Yeah. So I decided to divide the hotels up into, into two parts. Uh, each, each book has eight hotels each. And that way you can, and each chapter is divided up into three sections. The first section is just the history and without the ghosts. Um, the second section is deals with just the hauntings. And I, and I approach the hauntings like a historian approaches the history. I'm trying to find out when these stories went public, who started them, and how did they change over the years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what did everyone say about it? How, who was contributing what, and, and were these stories credible? And then the third part kind of overlaps with the haunted, but it's my experiences working there, uh, shooting there. Uh, did anything happen to me there? If so, what, what happened? And a lot of times we'll hear ghost stories that are very recent that either happened right before we arrived or right after we left. And so that gets included into that section. Yeah. Well, that's, that's and really good. That's really a fun way to do the whole thing. It's the only way I figured that made sense. And I was hoping that there would be enough layers where people could read it and they see where all the parts kind of start connecting and I wasn't trying to layer it. I just was hoping that it would end up layered. And then when I read everything after I'd finished writing it and going through edit, editing and going through the proofreading uh, phases, I was, I was very happy to see that it, the layers did. It was all very organic, how it just all kind of ties together, which is how I thought about the property so it, that came through, but um, I think it, it, it's it, it, it's great for people that don't believe in ghosts or are on the fence about it because they can gather, they'll learn something new about the property yeah, from kinda, a historical point of view. Yeah, I kind of noticed your, your site comes across a little bit as if... Um, that that it, that you are also being skeptical as uh, as well, right? And that you will debunk something if it's just a you know a rumor or just you find that it's just a myth Most and there's definitely. not really a lot there. So Most definitely, um, I feel like I owe it to I I, I feel that if I'm going to take on this subject, you know, I owe the reader the truth. Someone needs to tell them the truth. Mm -hmm. And while I may not know all the truth about all things, and I'm trying to connect the dots, which is easy to make mistakes, so I have to check and double-check uh, my sources. But uh, I, it's, uh, it's almost a revisionist approach in some, in some respects, because 
some of these stories, some of these locations, like the Queen Mary, which I had mentioned earlier, and the Freudian slip, uh, you know, so much has been written in the last 40 years that, you know, it's hard to know what to believe and what not to believe anymore. And so sometimes you just kind of have to look at, it's time now to just set everything aside. Let's look at what has been said over the years and then maybe make a determination what to keep and what to throw out. Maybe there is a need for a revisionist movement in the paranormal field uh, where we start questioning, does this really have something to do with the history of the location? Or is this, you know, something told by a psychic, uh, you know, 30 years ago, and it's been repeated so often that it's now accepted as fact as something that really happened when there's no evidence that it ever did happen in the first place. Yeah. yeah. So, so your next book is coming out with the next eight hotels. And then what about after, what about after that? Like there's so much to do in LA. Like we've talked to a couple of guests, like one guy putting together, uh, you know, the music scene in the late sixties and some conspiracies around that. And then lately people have been writing about the occult and symbolism within Hollywood. And now it's, it's hard to look at the, the movies in Hollywood. The oh, same. I would love to read that book. Yeah, I would love to read that book. Yeah, I mean, there's um, lots of different stuff, you know, going on in around LA now. You know, yes, in, as far I, as mysteries go. Well, there's never a shortage of mysteries. That's what part of the reason why LA has that is because it grew so fast. It didn't really have time to take. It it, it grew so fast. A lot of things just came and went under the radar screen, you know. Uh, there was very little processing going on as to what the events, how they were unfolding. And the city still suffers from that. I mean, we're Los Angeles, unfortunately, is a city that feels that they have to reinvent themselves, reinvent itself, reinvent itself over and over again. And so they'll knock down these old landmark hotels, put something new, and then it gets knocked down, and so we move further and further away. You know, it's because real estate is king, and they love to throw out the word progress. But we're losing our history before we have a chance to even understand it. That's my point. Yeah, yeah. So what do you, do you think so you're going to continue on this? I would love to. Uh, I have been contacted by a number of places. I don't know that I necessarily need to stay with hotels. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what I'm getting at. There's obviously lots of those, but there's lots of other stuff as well. Well, what's fun about hotels and why it's hard for me to give up on them is that that's like renting a haunted house. I mean, you're literally stay, get to stay the night in a haunted place. Right. And if you stay three, four nights <laughs> and you're staying in the poltergeist room and you know, you're wondering what's going to happen and you're running, you know, I, I always try to stay in the, in the most haunted rooms during these shoots for one of the main reasons why I prefer to do that is because I'd never carry an alarm clock. So I don't have to worry about sleeping in late because I sleep horribly <laughs> when I'm in these rooms. I just do. Uh, so I'll go to bed at four and I'll wake up. Start at seven, seven thirty the next morning, and I'll keep going. 
without an alarm clock, just because I don't sleep well in these haunted rooms. Uh, put me in a nice ghost-free room, and I might not wake up till twelve. You know. <laughs> so, um, so um, I can. I'm going to put this uh, your website in the show notes, and I'll and I'll link to you uh, to all that. Can, can people buy your book? Where do you prefer people when your book comes out? They buy it from your site or from Amazon or? Is there anywhere to pre-order? Yeah. Uh, well, you can pre-order through Bizarre LA. Okay. And what I can do. What I can do for you guys, since you've been so kind to me, um, what we can do is give you a coupon. So any listener out there, if they type, go to BizarreLA.com, and they there's a coupon box. And if they type in Gramerica, okay. they'll get 20% off the cover of the book. Okay, perfect. So instead of a $50 book, it'll be $40. Yeah. Is it a big book, like and, like uh, with glossy pages and uh, kind of good for the coffee table? Or yes, it, <laughs> it is. Uh, it is a coffee table book. Good, uh, perfect. It's eight by ten. It's but it's don't let this scare you. But volume one's you know running about four hundred and sixteen pages, but it's really a little more than just an inch thick. It's not like a tome. Um, and I read through the book in one day because it, it's got a lot of photos in it. It's, and the, 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 the facts are very, you know, concise and to the point. And, you know, it gets, I, I try to get the reader from A to Z without a lot of dull spots, um, that, that have to be covered. So I just kind of, you know, I just. I try to make it entertaining, but educational and, and, uh, a journey really. It's kind of an adventure because that's what it was to me. I think it's putting the book together. Yeah. I think it's a great idea too. And I love how you've approached it from a open-minded, but not gullible perspective. You know, you're looking at it and you're not, you know, you're not uh, emotionally invested in it. You're, you're not scared about it. You're just coming at it from a sort of a neutral position and, you know, you've had your own experiences and you're not just willing to believe everything everybody says and, and you're putting together this great little history and about the hauntings and the place and your photos. I think it's a great little combination of, you know, art and investigation. I Well, thank you. I, I That's the approach I took. I never saw these places as dark or sinister or haunted by anything evil in fact, I can't. I can tell you, I don't think I've ever encountered an evil entity yet. Uh, certainly not at these hotels. Um, those that have experienced the paranormal will know exactly what I'm talking about when I say this. But in most cases, when something happens, it's never scary. What it, what it is 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 it's a WTF moment. Where you're, you're like your first thought is, have I just flipped my lid? <laughs> Am I going crazy? Because I swear this was right here and now it's over there. Or I swear, you know. So you you end up mentally, you're you're like a dog chasing its tail. You're trying to come up with a rational, uh, non paranormal explanation for what just happened, and. It, now, that part will drive you crazy, especially if you can't find one. 
because you're just insistent that there has to be one before you're willing to admit that it's paranormal. But it really, you know, makes you think you've gone nuts for a while. That's not a scary feeling uh, necessarily. It's a little unsettling, but it's it's not what how the media portrays hauntings, where people scream right now. The you know, I I've heard stories of people getting scared and running, screaming out of the building, you know, because they saw a ghost or whatnot. Um, none of my models did that. I never did that. Um, there may be a time, maybe somewhere down the road, if I keep doing this, where that might happen. I don't know. I'll, I'll let you know what it does. Yeah, please <laughs> but, do. And hopefully, hopefully it doesn't. But, uh, yeah, you know, I, I never did quite answer your question. Models have seen um, doors open and close to their rooms. A lot of things that, that are just odd is that for instance, one one model had everything lined out perfectly in her room, and her toothbrush disappears and never found it again. And so she had to go buy a new new toothbrush. And and what's interesting is that that's actually one of the stories. You know, toiletries just disappearing out of rooms. Uh, for, you know, we have a a klepto ghost at this one location that just takes toiletries. Um, so those were that's most of most of the uh those are a few that come to mind those are a few examples that come to mind i usually every now and then i'll have a model that you know claims to be an intuitive or a psychic or whatnot it's okay i but i don't rely on that at all um my experience with psychics going way back are that they're not necessarily to be trusted as a as a rule. Now, sometimes they'll say something that there's a connection. So I am open minded. I'm not saying all psychics are the bunk, but I'm just saying that I can't really grasp anything that they're saying as relevant unless I, there is some kind of historical relevance that I am aware of or that I find in my research. Yeah, it's hard to grasp then, when you're yeah. not having that personal experience. Yeah. Yeah, but but personal experiences, you know, there's something to be said about them. I mean, the, I I know a lot of skeptics love to deride personal experiences for one reason or another, but because these things happen randomly, you don't always have a camera ready. You don't always have a recorder going. Uh, you're not always ready to ghost hunt when things happen. So personal experiences are relevant. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I agree. Right on. Well, it's been great. Um, it's been great having you on, Craig. Yeah, if you're well, ever in Calgary, you. you can come to the igloo and shoot Graham. <laughs> <laughs> with your camera. Yeah. With your camera. Yeah, yeah. I'll be the lizard yeah. guy. I'll be the lizard guy in the tunnel. We do a calf shoot. <laughs> oh, that would be fun. Well, you know, I've been invited. I mean, uh, people from Instagram and from, from other, they, they're always saying, when are you going to come to my town? You know, I, we have a haunted hotel. When are you going to come here? And I, I, if the book, you know, sells well enough, I would certainly start traveling. Doing yeah. that. I certainly would love to travel. What's your Instagram again? Well, my Instagram account is bizarre Los Angeles. And I think there's an underscore between bizarre and loss. Okay. I'll put a link so to it. I'll bizarre put a underscore loss. Angelus. Okay. Angelus. Okay, yeah. I'll I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. 
Right on. Right. I try to write everybody back that, you know, responds or, or whatnot. And, and, uh, and yeah, it's, it, it, it's been a fun experience. Uh, it's been a wild adventure. I'm not ready for the adventure to end, but, uh, I, you know, I'm interested in hearing what the responses are. So if any of your listeners have their own ghost stories at any of these locations, you know, Ooh. Please feel free to either contact you guys or contact me. I'd love to hear them. Yeah, for sure. As well. Yeah, I mean, these are some pretty big, you know, some pretty popular hotels in in Los Angeles. So I bet you we will hear from some people. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, that time, Felicia, I told you it would fly by. (laughs) Two hours. (laughs) Two hours, just like that. Yeah, thanks oh, for coming wow. on. Keep in touch when the next book comes out, and we'll and we'll um, you know, we'll talk about it, or we'll have you back on, or something like that. It's it's really interesting. And, and oh when yeah, it, well, and the we'll, next book has the second book has a surprise that you know that that the first book won't have. Okay, that's, that's, and that is, I actually did take a ghost photo accidentally. Uh, okay, and that'll be in there. That'll be in volume two. Oh, yeah. nice. Right on. All right, buddy. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot. Have a, have a great night. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be in touch. We'll, we'll order when that book comes out, we'll order one for the, for our studio here. All right. Okay. Well, thank you guys again. No. I really appreciate it. No problem, Craig. Good luck. Thanks buddy. Okay. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was our chat. Craig. Well, that went by fast, like you said. Always does. Yeah, I was Always hoping. Does. I was hoping to get into some more stuff, but uh, yeah, time was running out. No, oh, a big hockey game. Yeah. So no intro, I take it. No. No show this week. I was <laughs> going to play hockey. Uh yeah. Okay. Big yeah, thanks. That was, to, good. that was a great idea, though. Yeah. I can't wait to see the book. Yeah. yeah. Big thanks, to Craig, for coming yeah. on the show. Uh, big thanks to Napoleon. The only Napoleon for putting us in touch. And, uh, yeah, support the show if you can, guys. Check out gramerica.ca slash support for all the different ways you can support the show monetarily or otherwise. Uh, if any of you are drawers out there, maybe we could draw a picture of Graham as a calf. And maybe we'll get a uh, Graham calf shoot. Is a calf? One day. My calves or a calf? A calf. <laughs> we'll keep you, up with that. You need me. Your new oh. nickname is calf, is cat bait. <laughs> Cat or calf? I don't cat, understand. Cat bait. But, so you want me to draw me as a cat? No, a calf. <laughs> or a cat. <laughs> no, it's you, cat bait. Because you're like subservient to cats. I feel like you'd just roll over and play that. I'm the king if, of if cats. If a couple of cats were subservient. fucking with you, you would just like roll over. I'm not, no, they, they wouldn't fuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> you're the cat king? Yeah, the cat whisperer. Oh, yeah? <laughs> There's a, That's why I've got this gash on my forehead when he woke up in the middle of the night and leaped off my skull. Leapt. Leapt off my skull. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Big thanks to Craig. Uh, big thanks to you guys for listening. I think that's about it. Uh, thanks for listening, guys. We will see you next week.
more of you supported the show, I'd be less sick of podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>